Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 20, and we're going to be dealing with the subject of elders within the church. And so I feel this is a good time for me just to mention something. You know, it was about a year ago that uh, Jerome decided that he wanted to step down from the eldership. Well, he, he never actually totally stepped down. <laughs> he, he stepped down from teaching on Sundays, but he was still providing leadership in the meetings, and he still cares for the people here, so he would contact them. So in a, in a real sense, he was still eldering, but not, but not the uh, upfront preaching, teaching ministry. So just so you know, we still have two elders. <laughs> Jerome just isn't uh, preaching on Sunday right now. He's taking a sabbatical from that, and that's fine. Elders don't always, every elder doesn't always preach and teach. 1 Timothy 5.17 talks about some elders do that, some don't. We all have to shepherd. We all provide care for the flock, but you can do that in different ways. Okay, so just, just a word on that. Um, okay, let me find this. Okay, has everyone opened up to Acts chapter 20? We're going to be in verses 28 to 31. And we're breaking right into the middle of Paul's farewell address to the elders. But instead of going back and reading from the beginning, I trust that you will remember what we've already covered. We started in verse 17, and we're breaking right into the middle, verse 28. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And Father, we ask for your blessing now upon your word. Open it up to our hearts and minds. Lord, give us understanding of your word, your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's come to order. We've got a lot of business to take care of tonight. First on our agenda is what color to paint the social hall. There will be a work day at the church in two weeks, and we need to decide. It's been green for as long as I remember, but I think we need a change. Let's paint it off white. Yes, Bob? If you paint it off white, you're going to have rebellion on your hands. Some of our members have been used to a green social hall for 40 years. They might withhold their giving if you change the color. Okay, let's take a vote. All in favor of off-white? Two? All in favor of green? Five? It stays green. Ernie, will you buy the paint? Our second agenda item concerns the offerings. They've been down lately. We need to figure out some ideas to get them back up to par. Any ideas? Now, that kind of elder board may be what people are used to, but it's not the kind of elder board that you find in Scripture. <laughs> That's the kind of elder board that follows Robert's rules of order, and it's more like a business meeting where the elders are trying to solve practical decisions related to the church and they let all the spiritual ministry they give all that to the pastor and the elders who see themselves as separate from the pastor handle all the business decisions but that's not biblical I, I hope we'll come to see that every elder in scripture is a pastor every pastor is an overseer and all of them are called to the spiritual ministry of the church 
So as we come to Acts chapter 20, we're breaking right into the middle of Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders. Remember, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He wants to be there by the Feast of Pentecost. So he's rushing, but he has stopped long enough to call the elders of the church at Ephesus to him, and he's talking to them. He's exhorting them. Now, he started this exhortation in verse 17, but he really hasn't given any command to them at all. He's simply been rehearsing his own ministry among them and talking about what's ahead of for himself, when he gets to Jerusalem, the trials that are, that are going to await him there, the bonds and the afflictions. So he's been talking about his own life among them and what's uh, his future. But he hasn't told them to do anything yet. But he does when we come to verse 28. He begins to charge these elders with their duties. And so really, what I want to try to bring across today in the teaching is we're going to be looking at the duties of elders. What are they supposed to do? What's an elder supposed to be doing? Well, Paul tells them here exactly what they're supposed to be doing. And I'll just give you a quick summary. This is, this is the whole sermon here. Their duty is to, let me find it, to guard their own lives, number one, to lead the flock, to feed the flock, and to protect the flock. That's, that's his charge to these men. He's leaving. He's not going to be there anymore. He needs to make sure that these sheep are taken care of. And so he's charging them to do the same things that he was doing while he lived amongst them for three years. So that's where we're headed today. Paul has already seen God use him in a powerful revival in Ephesus. Thousands of people were converted. He's been tirelessly laboring among them, sparing no pains to present them perfect in Christ. He's leaving now, but he needs to know that this group of men are going to continue to take care of the flock while he's gone. And so he's already told them about his ministry among them, that he served the Lord with all humility, trials, and tears. He told them about his commitment to do the will of God, inspiring them to do the same. He told them that his ministry to, to the lost was that of evangelism. He preached repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But his ministry towards the church was that of teaching, uh, not withholding anything that was profitable from them, and teaching house to house and publicly. Okay, so that brings us then finally to verses 28 to 31. And notice the, there are two commands given. Number verse 28 says, be on guard. There's our first one. Be on guard. Verse 31, be on the alert. Be on guard. Watch. Be on the alert. It sounds very similar to what we have in 1 Peter 5 when Peter says, be on the alert, your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So same kind of thing, be watchful, be aware, see what's happening around you. Basically Paul is telling these, the flock there that they're going to have to persevere to the end. Paul doesn't just say, well I've taught you everything you need to know, once saved always saved, I'll see you in heaven, see you later. Sayonara. No, he knows that the flock there in Ephesus needs pastors to care for them and to, to watch over them, to teach them, to exhort them. Yet it might be true that if God has truly saved them, they are going to be in heaven, but that doesn't mean that they don't need spiritual input and spiritual help. And so he's providing that through these elders. 
So really a, a summary of everything that, that I believe about elders is summed up in this one sentence. A church is to be taught, overseen, and protected by a team of co-equal male elders who are also known as pastors or overseers. So if you understand that sentence, you really understand my understanding of what an elder is and what he's supposed to do. I'll, I'll just read it again. Okay. Okay, sure. A church is to be taught, overseen, and protected by a team of co-equal male elders. And these el elders are also known as pastors, and they're also known as overseers in the Bible. So they're male uh, I do not believe that the Bible gives the liberty for females to be elders of the church. First Timothy chapter 2 spells that out pretty, pretty clearly. So these are male. It's also a team. In Ephesus, there was a team. There was a group of men known as the elders that oversaw the church in Ephesus. And their job was to teach, oversee, and protect them. Okay, so let's, let's look at those four areas, the four duties required of an elder of the church. And you might say, well, Brian, why are we even talking about this? I'm not an elder. <laughs> what does this have to do with me? Well, you're a member of a church, and your church has elders, and you need to be aware of their job towards you, and you need to pray for them because they need your prayers. So it does apply. And in fact, some of the things we're going to talk about, the duties related to elders, every Christian in one sense or another will need to fulfill those duties. Okay, number one, elders need to guard their own lives. Notice what he says in 28, be on guard for yourselves. He tells them to be on guard for themselves before he tells them to be on guard for all the flock. In other words, the very first thing you need to nail down is that you need to be on guard for yourself. You can't really be on guard for all the flock if you're not first on guard for yourself. So if a pastor wants his congregation to be a sacrificial giver or passionate about evangelism, or if he wants them to really love the brethren and pour out their lives for other people and disciple them, well, then he needs to model that for the flock. He needs to be on guard for himself. Am I the kind of man, the kind of Christian, I would like the rest of the people in this congregation to be? He needs to ask himself that question. And to the extent that he falls short, then he needs to take that to the Lord and ask the Lord to change him. So he, ha he can be an example. He needs to cultivate his own relationship with Jesus. I mean, this is basic. Being on guard for yourself starts with you cultivating your own relationship with Christ. A man's role as an elder can slowly erode over time because there are stresses and strains related to eldership, um, counseling, uh, constantly teaching, preparing to teaching. Um, there's different things that come along with that role that can slowly erode a person's relationship with Jesus. In other words, especially if you look at it as a, as a profession or a, if you're full-time in the ministry and you receive money for your ministry, you can find yourself slowly slipping out of just a love relationship with Jesus to this is my job. This is what I have to do because it's my job. And so the joy starts to ebb out of your life because you're doing this because really you have to not really because you want to. Now, I'm not saying that's the way I feel about it, because I don't. I don't feel that way. But I know that you, that you can, and that many people have fallen into the trap of where the, the, the eldership becomes sort of a, a profession. 
And they, be, they look at it as being a professional rather than simply being a lover of Jesus and someone who loves the flock. So a person in this situation might still read the Bible, but he's no longer reading the Bible for his own soul. He's reading the Bible to get a sermon, and that's the only time he ever reads the Bible. Well, that, that's a bad situation. You don't want to be in that situation. He may stop singing praises to God while he's in his time of prayer with the Lord. Um, or even if he does spend time in prayer, he might look at it as a perfunctory duty rather than something that he enjoys, just being with the Lord in his presence. You get the, the idea, I hope, that the person who is an elder needs to cultivate his own relationship with Jesus. Cultivate it. He needs to spend time alone with the Lord. A man will never be useful for God unless he's first filled with God. He needs to have the joy of the Lord because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. So he has to take the necessary time to be alone with God. Remember when Paul was talking to the church of Corinth about the Lord's Supper? He said, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Well, that's the same way with us in everything. I can't deliver anything to you unless I receive it first from the Lord. So I have to just be with the Lord. And, and I'm talking about myself a lot, but I mean, you can apply this to yourself. You, you will have nothing to give anybody else unless you are spending time with the Lord. That's where your strength comes from. That's where your joy comes from. That's where all of the life, spiritual life you possess, it comes from him. And unless you're, you're tapped into Jesus and abiding in Jesus, you'll have nothing to give anybody else. You're going to feel dry. You're going to feel powerless and weak as a Christian. So we, we must draw. That's why Jesus said in John 15, abide in me and I in you. That's the whole secret to a fruitful a loving, happy, joyful Christian life is just abiding in Jesus. And if you're not cultivating your relationship with Jesus, you're missing out on that vital aspect of Christianity. So an elder especially must do that. He has to have a secret, personal, devotional life with Jesus, number one. Number two, if he's going to guard his own life, he must not live in the same sins that he preaches against in others. He's called to preach against sin, to call sin, sin, to call spade a spade. But yet if he's going on living in the same sins that he's re rebuking in others, that's a really poor situation. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, 14, without holiness, no man will see the Lord. Without holiness, no man will see the Lord. So that includes preachers. You can be a preacher, you can stand up in front of people and you can speak and be very popular. All the people may love you, they may idolize you, you may have a huge church. But if you're not a holy man, you're not going to see the Lord. That's just what the word says. So we don't, of course, we don't live a holy life in order to get saved. We do so because we are. We are saved. So personally, in my life, in order to make sure that I'm pursuing a path of holiness, um, I've decided, and Debbie and I have decided this together, that I'm not going to counsel women alone. I think that's, you, you're opening yourself up for potential harm, spiritual harm to your own soul, if you start doing that. There was one or two people in my ministry, who, women, who were offended because I told them I can't, I can't counsel you alone. 
but uh, I think it's much better in the long run. I mean, in fact, I think that's what the women of the church are there for anyway. We ought to have godly women in the congregation that can counsel other women. Titus chapter 2 tells us that the older women are supposed to be teaching the younger women. So I don't ha really have to feel guilty about that, I think. Do we, do we have some godly women in this church who can counsel some younger women? I mean, it ought to be there. So that's one thing. And then I think also an elder should have other men in his life that he can be honest with and he can confess his sins to and he can ask for prayer and he can ask for counsel. If there's nobody in your life like that, that's not good. I thank God that I have Jerome and we meet together fairly frequently and we can talk really about anything. So I thank God for that, that friendship. If an elder doesn't guard himself, the devil can knock him off. And what happens when he knocks one of the leaders off in a church? Ten other people in the flock go with him. I, a few years back, there was a church where uh, there's many, many churches related to this one church, and the pastor got knocked off, and the, the whole church dissolved, and people, it was terrible. The, the fallout was hundreds and probably thousands of people fell out over this situation. That, that, that's worrisome to me. See, a pastor is different from every other public speaker. Like you can have a public speaker speaking about this topic or that topic. All they need to really be concerned about is that they're telling people that it's true. But a pastor can't worry only about just speaking what's true. He has to also be concerned, am I living when I'm speaking? I have to live out when I'm speaking. I can't be content just with, is it true? 1 Timothy 3 verse 2 says that he has to be above reproach. An elder has to be above reproach. Now that doesn't mean that an elder's perfect. If it did mean that, we'd have no elders because there's no perfect people in the world. I think what it means is that he has to be the kind of person that the enemy can't lay hold of. So when he does fall into sin, he confesses it, he repents of it, and he tries to make restitution. In other words, he seeks to have integrity in his life. He's not going to be perfect, but he, when he does fail, he's, he'll seek to, to make restitution for that, that wrong that he's done. And I don't know about you, but have you ever noticed that the qualifications for an elder in the Bible are all moral? Their character. They're, there's only one skill that he has to have. He has to be able to teach. That's the only thing he's told in all the qualifications that he has to be able to do. Everything else is, he's a husband of one wife, he's not a fighter, he's not a brawler, he's not given to much wine, he's temperate, he's dignified. It all shows his godly character. So when you look for an elder, you're not, you shouldn't be looking for someone who's successful in business. Well, that's what we do. We look for a successful businessman, we'll make him the elder. He'll, he'll make the right decisions in the church. Well, is he a godly man? Not really, but he's a successful businessman. Well, then we shouldn't be choosing him, right? Or we say, this guy is such a great speaker. He can draw the masses. Everyone loves to hear him speak. Well, the Bible never tells us that he has to be such a, a great speaker. He just has to be able to teach. He has to be able to explain the Word of God so people can understand it clearly, okay? So that's, when you come down to the real qualifications of a pastor, here they are. Live a holy life know God's word, be able to teach that word to others, and love the people. You've got four basic qualifications for a pastor or an elder. 
So it doesn't matter if that guy's rich or poor. It doesn't matter if he's popular or, or obscure, if he's successful or unsuccessful. If he can live a holy life, know the word, teach the word, and love the people, that's good enough for me because it's good enough for God. That's, that's all really that's required of an elder. So number one, the duty of an elder, he needs to guard his own life. If you stop guarding your own life, you're in for trouble. Number two, he has to lead the flock. Lead them. L-E-A-D. He has to lead the flock. And notice verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Now let's just take that, that phrase, all the flock. Not some of them, all of them. So there should be no favoritism. No partiality when it comes to the elders' relationship within the body. In other words, he can't just spend time with the people in the church that he likes particularly and ignore the people that he doesn't like particularly. <laughs> he needs to love and care for all the flock, not just the likable and agreeable and wealthy and smart and funny and encouraging sheep, but also for the stubborn, wayward, disgruntled, and ornery sheep. All the flock need to be taken care of. <laughs> Now, who would comprise the flock? He says in verse 28, guard yourselves and all the flock. And he explains what he means by flock later. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. That's who the flock is. It's the church. So the flock is not talking about your next door neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. The flock are those people that love Christ, Christians that are part of a local church. The elders to watch over them. So see, evangelists minister to lost people. Pastors minister to Christians. Their basic job, now they may have some opportunities to preach the gospel while non-Christians are involved with other Christians, but for the most part, their ministry is to the saved. It's to, it's to build up the saved, to strengthen the saved, to inspire and motivate and exhort and command the saved that they can go on and persevere in faith. So the flock are those that Jesus purchased with his own blood. They're called the church of God. They're called the flock of God. And this is their sphere of ministry, the church. Now, he also says in verse 28, he says, be on guard for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Overseers. The word overseer tells us that part of the responsibility of an elder is to oversee, of course, or to lead. To oversee something is to have a sort of a managerial or supervisorial um, role in the life of that local church. Uh, sometimes you could use the word Guardian, manager, or supervisor as sort of synonyms for overseer. So the overseer was the one in charge of something. In a negative sense, you could even, this is a very negative sense, but you recall that during the times of slavery, there would be overseers. Their job was to oversee all the slaves, and they were brutal, and they were heartless. So that's a negative example. But they were in charge of those, those slaves. And in the church, the overseer is to, to have a leadership or a supervisorial role. In other words, he's to be leading the flock. He's not supposed to tell the flock, okay, go eat wherever you want today. 
No, he's the shepherd. He leads the flock of sheep to where he wants them to eat. So he, he seeks to set some direction for the, for the trajectory of the church. And of course, the only way you really can do that is by seeking the Lord and asking him to show you what his trajectory is. It's not our trajectory we want to set anybody on. We want the Lord's will done in the life of the local church. But overseeing simply means that you're taking a leadership role and you're leading the church. In, in our individualistic, democratic America, there has been for a long time an anti-authority spirit. And people don't like authority, many people. They're, they're anti-authority. They're suspicious of authority. They rebel at the idea of submitting to authority. But the Bible does speak about authority and the leaders of the church and that the flock is called to submit to the leaders as they submit to Christ. As I'm referring to Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verse 17, which we're probably going to read a little bit later. So it's part of his job to direct the affairs of the church. Some churches function, uh, they call it congregational. That's the way they organize the church. And basically what you do, if there's any decision to be made in the church, the church meets, they talk about it, and then they have a vote. And whatever vote wins, that's the decision the church makes. I don't really see that in Scripture. I've never, I've never found that in any of in the Book of Acts, as we read through Acts, where any the church got together to vote on anything. I do find God appointing elders and then calling them to oversee. And so I would, I would see more of a biblical role as the church has elders that God has called to lead it. They don't do it apart from the input of the rest of the church. They solicit input, and these men are not dictators. They're humble servants there to minister to the flock, but yet they are still called to lead, and the church is still called to follow them. So it's much like a, a good marriage. We've got a husband and wife. The husband is called to be the leader of that relationship, but of course he's communicating with his wife. He's getting her input. He's wanting to make a decision that they can agree on together. So it's a symbiotic close relationship together. The church is like that. The, the flock and its leaders together um, are like that same relationship. Here are some scriptures if you've never considered this idea of authority within the, the leadership of the church. 1 Timothy 5.17 The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now did you notice the word rule? Elders who rule well. It carries a connotation of having some authority to direct the affairs of the local church. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.12. But we request you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. There's that, that word also. They have charge over you in the Lord. Denotes some authority that goes along with this role that God has given them, this ministry to you, that you are to follow their leadership. Or Hebrews 13.17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So the role of overseeing carries with it some authority to lead the flock, and the flock are exhorted to follow, just like sheep follow a shepherd. Of course, this doesn't mean you do anything a pastor tells you to do. 
If pastors tell you to do something that's not biblical or is not moral, then you reject what they say and you probably go find another church unless they're willing to repent. Um, but if you've got godly pastors who really want the will of God, I don't really see that to be a problem. But anyway, you should, you should always check what they have to say. Like if, if Jerome or I are teaching the word of God, it's your responsibility to go back to the word and see, does the Bible really say what they're saying? It says, because I'm responsible to God. I'm going to have to give an account to God for what I believed and what I did in my life. I can't just say, well, Pastor Brian told me to do it. So that's okay with you, isn't it, Lord? No, it's not. You are, you're responsible to know the word of God for yourself. Okay. He also says back here in Acts chapter 20, that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Let's just stop and think about that. Who made them, who makes a man an overseer? The Holy Spirit does it. Uh, the elders don't really make another man an overseer. The church doesn't make a man an overseer by voting him into office. This is the Holy Spirit's job. The Holy Spirit calls a man to be an elder. In 1 Timothy 3.1, it says, Now, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a good work that he desires to do. So the Holy Spirit when he calls him, gives him a desire for this work. There, there comes just this, this desire to be used of the Lord in serving the church. And it's a calling that the Lord has done it. And so when we appoint an elder at the bridge, what we're doing is really we're looking for the people God has already made overseers. Who, is there somebody within our church that the Lord has already called him to this? He's already eldering. He's already overseeing. He's already shepherding. He's doing it without any recognition, for, without any rec financial recompense. He's not in it for the money. He's not in it for the fame. He's doing it because the Lord has put a call on his life. So we, we notice those people, and then we test them. The Bible tells us they should be tested. And if they're found faithful, then we publicly ordain that man and set him apart as an official leader within that local church. And his job then is to serve the people, not lord it over the people, but to serve the people. As Jesus did, he, he did not come to be, or to, to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life a ransom for many. And when the Holy Spirit makes a man an elder, I believe there's going to be three different confirmations that we can test. The individual, there's going to be a confirmation within him that yes, God has called me to this. It's not like we're going to drag somebody kicking and screaming and make him an elder where, if he doesn't want to do it. He's got to want to do it. <laughs> And then there's going to be a confirmation from the church. Like Jerome and I will go to you and say, do you believe that this person is, is qualified? Do you see him as an elder here in this church? Is there any reason why we should not appoint this person as an elder? So that's what we would do if there's another elder being raised up. And then I think there would be confirmation from within the existing elders. We would, we would recognize that same thing. Everybody recognizes it. He recognizes it. The, the leaders recognize it. The church recognizes it. And so we just appoint that person publicly. So at the bridge, we would be looking for men whom God has called, not just someone who wants to be a big shot, you know, and boss around people and have this air of importance. I'm somebody special in this church. The, the very first thing, the most important thing you would look for in another leader is a person who's a servant, someone who's humble, someone who's willing to be taught, 
someone, you know, that kind of spirit is essential. To, Jesus even, even taught that. He said, whoever wants to be uh, great in God's kingdom, he has to be the servant of all. So that's what you look for. Do, do they have a servant's heart? Are they teachable? Are they humble? Prideful, arrogant men who want to boss other people around make horrible leaders. They make tyrants, and we don't want that within the church. So that's the second thing. Number one, they have to guard themselves, their own lives. Number two, they need to lead. In other words, they have to take up this mantle of authority. God has given them some authority to lead the flock and to do that without apology because that's what God has called them to do. Number three, they need to feed the flock. They need to feed the flock. In fact, that's how some translations like the King James and the um, American Standard Version translate verse 28 where it says, to shepherd the church of God, they, they translate it there, to feed the church of God. Now, why would they do that? Well, John Stott has written on this verse. He says, to shepherd means to tend a flock, and in particular, to lead a flock to pasture, and so to feed it. So inherent within the idea of shepherding is the idea of feeding that flock, making sure that they're strong, nutritionally, that they've got all the vitamins coming into their diet that they need. So the pastors of any local church, their calling is to make sure that you get all of God's nourishment from the word of God that you need to be strong in the Lord. They're not going to feed you a diet of ice cream and cake every, every Sunday. They're also going to feed you meat and potatoes and broccoli and asparagus and all your vegetables. You're, you should be getting all of it. And that's why... That's why I love that we just go through books of the Bible because I, I can't pick and choose what I'm going to give you. I, I just give you the next verse in the Bible. And so you're getting everything God has said, not just what Brian likes to talk about, you know. So hopefully we're getting a good diet that way. Um, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Peter says, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. And I'm convinced that the thing God uses the most in our lives to grow us spiritually is his word. And that's why there is such a premium in scripture put on the scriptures as, as that, that vehicle, that instrument by which we grow. As a church, we're strong if we're strong in the word. And individually, we're strong spiritually if we are in the word. Remember Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. So the word of God is what sanctifies us. And to be sanctified means to be made holy, to be set apart to God. So the priority of an elder one of, the, one of the great priorities of his role is to teach the scriptures. I just recently went through the, what we call them the pastoral epistles. It's First and Second Timothy and Titus. So these are letters that Paul wrote to leaders of local churches. And it's astounding to me how much emphasis Paul put on the teaching of the word. And let me just show this to you from my tablet, which it just turned off. See all that blue? Those are all the verses in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus that talk about teaching. And I was going to go through them all, but it would take me a long time to do it. 
Um, maybe we can just do it for 1 Timothy. We'll skip 2 Timothy and Titus. But there's a lot. <laughs> God puts a huge emphasis on the Word of God and the ministry of elders. So let's do that. Let's go through 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Okay, we'll start in verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain off on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So he's to be instructing certain men not to teach strange doctrines. In verse 5 he says, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Again, he mentions our instruction. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, he says that an elder must be able to teach. In chapter 4, verse 6, he says, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. So he is to point out the things that make for sound doctrine. In verse 11, he says, Prescribe and teach these things. In verse 13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. In verse 15, he says, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. In verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. In chapter 5, verse 17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. In chapter 6, verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Do you get the flavor of Paul's, uh, his letter here to Timothy? He constantly encourages and exhorts him to be involved in teaching and instructing the people that are under his leadership. That's a major part of what he's supposed to be doing. So to shepherd the flock is talking about teaching, opening up the Bible and helping people understand what God has said. The, the, the elder, the pastor is not supposed to give up and just share his opinions. His opinions have no weight. They can't do any good. The word of God is what is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. This is what is going to help you in your Christian life. And for me to get up here and speculate or tell jokes or stories or share my opinion, well, forget that. Get me, if, I, if I start to do that, would you say, Brian, you're, you're can't. <laughs> you're no longer an elder here. We need to find somebody who will teach us the Bible. We want to hear from God. We don't want to hear you. We want to hear God speak. That's his job. He, he needs to take the word of God and help you to hear what God has already said in a way that you can understand and, and respond to it. Okay, that's also why I really love expositional teaching. There are many ways to teach, many ways to give sermons. You can do topical messages and uh, I don't know, there's all kinds of different ways. 
Expositional teaching simply means that you're trying to expose what the truth of that scripture is. You're trying to get to the rock bottom. What, what did God mean by this? And so, so, so the, the elder's job is to try to understand what God has said so he can explain that. He can teach it. And then he can exhort from it to actually put it into practice. So an elder is going to have to spend hours poring over the scriptures, making sure that he understands the text correctly. And if he's not sure if he understands it correctly, being honest with the people that he's teaching and telling them, I'm not sure about this. This is what I think, but I want you to be in the word and I want you to grapple with this yourself. So there we go. He, he's to shepherd the church. There's another phrase here that we need to look at in chapter 20, verse 28. It says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And here it comes to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, wait a minute. It says God purchased the church with his own blood. Does that create any conflict in your mind right now? God doesn't have blood. God is a spirit. He's not, he's not a human being. He doesn't have flesh and bone and blood like you and I do. God doesn't have blood. So how could Paul tell them that you need to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased, which God purchased with his own blood? The only way this makes any sense is if Jesus is God. Amen. You see that? It doesn't make any sense any other way than if Jesus Christ is God. And I know there are a lot of cults that will tell you Jesus is not God. He's... Michael the archangel, or he's the spirit brother of Lucifer, or he's somebody else. Don't believe them. The word of God tells us that Jesus Christ is God because he purchased the church with his own blood, and he is God. The first chapter of Hebrews 1, I was struck just the other day reading Hebrews 1, how he quotes verse after verse after verse from the Old Testament that apply to Jehovah, and he applies them to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So the divinity, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is so crucial for us to, to understand and embrace. And he also tells us here that he purchased the flock with his own blood. That word purchase means to be redeemed, to be bought. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. So Christian, you have been bought with a price. You are not your own. You don't get to make up your mind about what you want to do in life. You have a Lord who has bought you. You are his servant. He paid good blood to redeem you. And it is your obligation to glorify God in your body. You can't simply make up your mind, I think I'll spend my money this way or that way. I'll spend my time this way or that way. You need to ask the Lord, is, how do you feel about this Lord? Are you good with this? Do you approve? Is it your will? So we are, we are under the lordship of Christ because he bought us with his blood. One of the old Puritans by the name of Richard Baxter wrote in his book, Can you not hear Christ saying, Did I die for these people? And will you then refuse to look after them? Were they worth my blood? And are they not worth your labor? Did I come down from heaven to seek and save that which was lost? And will you refuse to go next door or to the next street or village to seek them? 
How small is your labor or condescension compared to mine? I debased myself to do this, but it is your honor to be so employed. Have I done and suffered so much for their salvation, and will you refuse that little that lies upon your hands? Every time we look out upon our congregation, let us believingly remember that they are purchased by Christ's blood, and that therefore they should be highly regarded by us. Good word for me, for every Sunday, just to remember that. Okay, these folks have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ at an infinite cost to the Son of God. They were bought. I dare not play fast and loose with his word. I dare do my utmost to try to deliver the word of God as sincerely and as honestly and as truthfully as I possibly can. These are God's people bought with his blood. Okay, number four, elders must protect the flock. He tells them, be on guard, be on the alert. And those two things are like bookends to this section. Be on guard comes at the beginning be on the alert comes at the end of this short four-verse passage where he's outlining the duties of elders. They show us Paul's primary immediate concern. He tells us that, well, in verse 28, excuse me, 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So savage wolves are going to come in from the outside of the church. But then he says, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So there's going to be savage wolves coming in from the outside, but there's also going to be men from within. And it sounds like men from within the elders. That's how it sounds to me. He says, from among your own selves. Now, I guess he could mean the church, but if he means the elders, that's, that's daunting. That means... That means some of these elders are going to defect and they're going to try to draw away the disciples after them rather than after Christ. So this is a danger to the church and Paul's concerned for the church. He doesn't want this to happen to them. So he says, be on your guard, be on the alert. When those savage wolves come in, deal with them. When men from your own selves speak perverse things and start drawing away the disciples after themselves to build their own little kingdom, deal with them. You can't just let that go on in the church. You're the leaders of that congregation. You need to take a stand is really what he's saying. So be, be like a shepherd looking for wolves. Your eyes are always peeled for those wolves. And make sure that even from within your own fellow shepherds, none of them start going off the deep end that you're watching out for each other, and that you're actually, you may have to rebuke a fellow elder if that starts to happen. So that's the danger. Now, interestingly, almost all animals have some way to defend themselves. God has built it into them. Porcupines have quills. Skunks have stink bombs. Animal, a deer can run really fast and get away from their prey. Bears have claws and fangs. They've all got something. What about sheep? Sheep don't have anything except a shepherd. <laughs> if, if they've got a shepherd, that's their protection. If they don't have a shepherd, what's that? Have you ever been kicked by a sheep? No, I haven't. <laughs> Maybe their feet? That, that's their defense? <laughs> so the shepherd is the sheep's one and only defense. Now, of course, Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the ultimate shepherd, but he's appointed under shepherds under him to watch out for his sheep. And he speaks here about savage wolves. 
Remember Jesus talked about wolves in sheep's clothing? So it's a sheep dressed up, I mean a wolf dressed up like a sheep. So on the outside, he looks like a sheep. But inside, he's a wolf. And not just any wolf, he's a savage wolf. Savage wolves like to eat other sheep. And that's the point. You need to be on the watch because there are going to be these wolves coming into the church and they're going to reap destruction and you need to take care of these wolves. So when somebody comes in preaching false doctrine to a local church, the elders need to take responsibility to dealing with that situation. They can't just allow it to go on. Where someone, and it's hard for us because we have such an open forum in our church and anybody can speak, which makes it more difficult. And when you have a tight, tight knit, you know, where nobody can speak but the pastor, it's easy to shut somebody down. They, they never get the opportunity. Here, they have a lot of opportunity. So if somebody comes in and they start speaking heresy, they start leading the church astray, then the present elders, we have to deal with that. We can't, we can't just allow that to happen. There was a time once when I was speaking on, I think it was Luke 21, and there was a guy that came in from the outside that day, and, and he wanted to argue with everything I had to say. And so that, in a situation like that, the person who's not preaching is going to have to say, brother, you have to be quiet. <laughs> we, we can talk about your issues later, but this isn't the time or the place for that. You know, if, if he was one of us and we knew him, it might be different, but this was a stranger that we knew nothing about. So, anyway, so what are wolves interested in? What do they like? They like eating other sheep, don't they? Wolves are in, and what are shepherds interested in? They're interested in the welfare of the sheep. So, the wolf uses the sheep for itself. They like to eat it up because it makes them full, they, and they're hungry. So, they use the sheep the shepherds serve the sheep, and that's the difference between the two. If someone's going to use the sheep for their own ends, they're a wolf. If they're there to serve the sheep to, for the welfare of those people, then they're a true shepherd. How does a shepherd deal with a savage wolf when it comes into the sheep pen? What does it do? And we don't know. <laughs> he probably takes his, his rod out and he starts beating that wolf over the head, if he can, or he takes rocks and throws it at him, he drives him out of the pen. He doesn't allow him to stay where he's going to eat up the other sheep. Just, that just makes sense. So elders can't be Mr. Nice Guy when it comes to people coming in bringing heretical doctrine. We have to draw the line and we say, oh, that's not permitted in this fellowship. If someone starts teaching Jesus is not God, they're out. They, they can't stand up and preach that in this church. I mean... I think we're pretty, we're pretty loose in the sense that we allow people different expressions, um, people have different opinions, and on a lot of different subjects, but there are some subjects that you don't want to allow variance for. People have, have been put to death for taking a stand on the deity of Jesus Christ. So there are certain truths that we protect at all costs. We don't allow falsehood. Then he goes on in Acts 20. Verse 30, he says, From your own selves men will arise. So from the midst of the elders, or at least the church at large, men are going to arise speaking perverse things. So this is heresy. It's not, this isn't sound doctrine. This is perverse. And their whole objective in this is to draw away disciples after them. They want a following. 
instead of wanting these people to be in love with Jesus and follow Jesus, they're wanting them to follow them. They're wanting a name for themselves. And so you, this, we have to deal the same way with people like that. They're not to be permitted. It only takes one drop of poison to pollute a glass of water, right? You don't have to pour in four ounces of poison and four ounces of water. Just put a, put a drop in. And it only takes one drop of heresy. To, it's like a, that one bad apple. It starts to spoiling all the other apples. We have to seek as much as possible to keep doctrine pure. So Jehovah's Witnesses teach that God created Jesus. He's the first and greatest creation of God in their view. He's Michael the Archangel. Mormons teach that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, the devil. Oneness Pentecostals teach you must speak in tongues to be saved. You need to be water baptized to be saved, and they deny the Trinity. Seventh-day Adventists teach that Sunday worship is the mark of the beast. These are, these are doctrines that we can't just allow to continue if, 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 they, if they would be perpetrated. How did Paul deal with false teachers? Look at what he says in verse 31. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. That word admonish has the meaning of to warn. I didn't cease to warn each one with tears. So, I mean, he, he felt what he was saying. And, and, he, and he expressed it. And... You get, you get the impression of Paul that he sincerely loved the people and he spared no pains to make sure that they were growing in their faith in Jesus Christ. So that's how Paul dealt with them. He, he continually warned, be on the alert, on, on guard, watch out, be on the alert. And then if there was someone like Hymenaeus or Alexander, like we read about them in the book of Timothy, he put them out of the church. There are some situations where you even have to do that. 1 Corinthians 5 talks about someone living immorally, sleeping with his mother's wife, and Paul says, you, why aren't you grieving over this? They should have been grieving that this sin was going on in their midst and they were doing nothing about it. So he says you need to put that, remove that person from the church. You need to judge them and remove them. So there are situations where that is necessary. All right, so four duties, watch over your own life, lead the church, feed the church, and protect the church. Those four basic categories. So number one, I don't know if there's anybody here like this, but if there is anybody who aspires to eldership, take, take this teaching to heart. Take what Paul said to heart. This is what you're aspiring to, leading the flock, feeding the flock, protecting the flock, and watching over your own soul, caring for other believers. Current elders, Jerome and myself, this is what God has called us to do. And it's good for me just to be reminded, I'm glad I went through this study because it reminds me, okay, this is the will of God for me. How am I doing? How am I doing? I'm sure I could do a lot better job of it. And I'm, it's, it's good for me to be reminded and what about you, the flock? I would just ask that you would pray for your leaders when you go to pray, or just remember us in prayer so that we, we would be faithful. We, we would 
have a servant's heart. We would be humble men. We, we would care about your souls. We would want to deliver God's word as, as accurately as we can. And then if times get difficult, I would just exhort you to submit to your leaders in those difficult situations. If there comes a situation where you maybe don't see it the same way we do and a decision has to be made and we make a decision you're not happy with, would you just submit to that and try to do it with joy? He says, so that your leaders, um, this would be unprofitable for you if you do it so that, um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm butchering this passage now, <laughs> Hebrews 13, 17. Anyway, I'll, okay, I'll go back here. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who have to give an account to God for your soul. Let them do this with joy. That's what I was trying to remember. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. It can be very grievous when you've got fighting going on within the church and arguing and all that bickering and disunity. Let's try to pull together and just like when a husband and a wife, sometimes the husband has to make a decision and his wife isn't there with him. But a decision has to be made. He believes that this decision is right. His wife isn't totally on board. He has to do it anyway. Sometimes that happens. Thankfully, not very often. But it, it's incumbent, I think, then on the wife to do the best she can just to support her husband. She can talk to him about it, of course, and maybe she'll be able to persuade him not to do it. But if he's persuaded, I've got to make this decision, then just do your best to support your husband in that decision. Same way with the church. That's it. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <Sorry>. The end. <laughs> Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for appointing elders. Lord, thank you for the privilege you've given Jerome and myself to shepherd your flock. And I know that, Lord, we're, we're, not, we're not perfect at this. There's areas where we can do better. Help us, Lord, to be good and faithful men. I pray that you'd raise up other elders in the future, Lord. Lord, we praise that you'd make us so effective at making disciples that we have to start other churches, and we need other elders to watch over them. Would you do that, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen.